Who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair, yep. his ice-cold demeanor, and his big muscles. Absolutely. I must break you. Welcome to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Hello and welcome back to I Must Break This Podcast, the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Uh, today we're taking a look at the 2008 action adventure Diamond Dogs. In this tale, Lundgren plays Xander Ronson, a brawler mercenary who's hired to protect an expedition crew who are searching for an ancient Buddhist artifact. Meet Ronson. What brought you to Inner Mongolia? Liquor's cheap. We're there willing. What more can a man ask for? The toughest Green Beret America ever produced. I have a job proposition for you. If you've got the money, he's got the muscle. 25000 now, and the other 75000 after. They're searching for one of the world's most valuable treasures. The Tonka of God Okirafani. An ancient Buddhist tapestry. The diamonds alone are thought to be worth 50 million on today's market. And Ronson is the only man tough enough. Life's cheap out here. It gets cheaper. Hungry enough. If we don't kill them all now, they'll bring more friends and try again later. And crazy enough. What are you running away from? Nothing. To lead them to it. Well, as long as that damn Tonka is around. A lot more people gonna die. Got a problem? Get Ronson. Dolph Lundgren. Diamond Dogs. I'm your host, Sean Malloy, and coming back once again is my buddy Brenton Hasem from his YouTube channel, All Out of Bubblegum. Brenton, thank you so much for coming on, man. Hey, no problem. Back again. <laughs> That's right, back again. And uh, yeah, this particular film that we're discussing, I mean, I'll just I'll just go there right now, because I remember when you and I, uh, uh, you know, recorded uh, an episode, what, like four or five episodes ago or so, I remember you telling me that um, you really dug this film, Diamond Dogs. Like, th this was one that you were a pretty big fan of the the first time you saw it. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So I guess I'll go there right now, because I know we're going to be picking apart various aspects. So I'll go there right now. How did it play on your um, on your most recent viewing? It's, uh, well, it's, it's I think it's Dolph Lundgren's ugliest film. But um, by the end of it, actually, I was kind of into it again. So I mean I don't know what, I don't know what to make of that, but I actually I still I still like it okay. overall. Um, it's it's definitely you know uh, it has it has more issues. I'm a lot more critical of it now than I was when I saw it in I think 2008. But uh, by the end of the movie, I was like, you know what? I actually I think I really like what's going on in this movie. <laughs> well, and before we uh, before we talk about our. Um our thoughts about it and everything like that. We've kind of established a bit of a tradition here. Um, 
I have just uh, cracked open a, uh, I've never had this before, but it is a, uh, what is it? It's a white ale, a Belgian style white ale, a white rascal put together by the uh, Avery Brewing Company. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming you have a beverage as well. I do. I got this thing called a Trignac, which is a, it's a malt beverage aged in cognac casks. <laughs> and I have Very no nice. idea. Um, I mean, it's also a Belgian ale, so that's kind of funny. Uh, I've never had it as well, so we're going to find out how it is. Well, I feel like uh, Ronson, that, that's the character here, Ronson, uh, Dolph's character, Xander Ronson. Such a cool name, by the way. We can just say that right now. I, I feel like he's the kind of guy who would uh, probably dig an ale, right? He's yeah. the kind of guy who would probably drink some ales, right? Yeah. Well, what's he say in the movie? I think she asked him what he drinks, and he's. I think he just says, like, anything. <laughs> anything, that's right. So- yeah, I'll just I'll just say right now, it, it's funny, actually, when I was uh, at the liquor store, um, my local uh, establishment trying to find something, I, I had it in my mind. I was thinking to myself, you know, it'd be really kind of cool if I could find like a Mongolian beverage or a Mongolian beer or something like that. Um, finding imported stuff in my neck of the woods, though, is kind of uh, is kind of difficult. And it's it's really kind of wild. Um, I don't know if you've had this experience or not, but just walking in. It, it's kind of amazing how, you know, as we're kind of still we're on, we're on the, 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 the back end now of this whole quarantine mess that we've been in. But mm-hmm. um, I feel like uh, liquor stores have uh, seen a huge boon in business uh, within the past couple months because my particular establishment was pretty picked over. And I sent you a photo. I had yeah. to assemble a six pack because I couldn't really find anything. Well, I had uh, it was a similar situation up here. And I also was like, is there any kind of Mongolian beer? And and I have a specialty shop up here, but there was nothing. Um, I know. So I just kind of went, um, let's see if I can find something big and something high alcohol content. Okay. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Well, hopefully we're able to get through uh, get through this entire thing and, and it's still coherent by yeah. the end. So. <laughs> So I guess uh, before we get going, uh, I'm curious your initial exposure to uh, to Diamond Dogs. When did you when did you first see it, or better yet, when did you first hear about it, and what did you think then? Uh, I was part of an action group uh, on a different website. I think it was on Chud, and people were talking about the movie since I think maybe early 2008, late 2007. And, and it got to a point where they weren't sure when it was going to come out. And there was one guy on there and he was aware that it was, that you could import it from someplace. And I can't remember where I imported it from. And I think I got it in prob very late 2008, maybe, maybe in like November, December. Um, but anyhow, I watched it right away. And, uh, and I think I watched it with a friend of mine, and he just hated it. And I and I was like, oh, that's pretty good, actually. But um, I liked it back then. So, <laughs> Well, like you, you know, I remember when I first heard about this one. I mean, and it, it seemed like a, a pretty exciting project for Dolph. I mean, he got to play. I mean, we're going to be coming back to this, I imagine, a few times. But the character, the character mm-hmm. who Dolph gets to play, one website I, I saw uh, refers to this particular character as He's like a mix between Indiana Jones and Han Solo, which I think is a is a pretty apt uh, a comparison. But he got to play this kind of surly, badass uh, adventurer character, and he also got to do so in an exotic locale, being China. And plus, the fact, uh, in my opinion, I, I thought you know the fact that this is being filmed in China was also promising. 
because I feel like the Chinese film market is is awesome. It, it's loaded with talent in terms of action and stunt work, etc. And so that was all pretty promising. But what was weird about it was it started uh, filming in 2006, and I remember seeing various uh, pictures of its production. Um, oddly enough, actually, I remember when Rocky Balboa came out, Dolph was invited to the premiere of, uh, of Rocky Balboa. And so there are pictures of him at the premiere and he's rocking that shaved head that mm -hmm. he had for this particular film. And then what was weird was it just sort of sat for a couple of years. I guess rumor has it, it kind of had trouble finding distribution here in the U S and so it just kind of sat, uh, Dolph later filmed missionary man and then missionary man saw a DVD release, but diamond dogs was still just sitting and it wasn't officially released uh, in the in the U.S. until uh, April of 2008, oddly enough, by Sony. Uh, Sony, you know, they picked up so many of Dolph's previous films, and so they uh, they picked this one up. But that was pretty my experience. That was my exposure, my experience. I remember I had to wait a couple years for this to finally to finally see it. Well, um, did you find it worth the wait? Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, gosh, I'll just say right now. I think the first ooh, 10 to 15 minutes of this film are rock solid. I think the first, you know, the, when, when they first introduce the character of Ronson and you get to see that look that, that, you know, Dolph is sporting for this particular film. I, I really dig the first 10 minutes and it's, it's kind of weird because I feel like the film has a lot of ambition and, and Dolph is playing such a cool character <clears throat> for once, but unfortunately, and we're going to be coming back to this as well. The film ran out of uh, resources in production. It ran out of uh, the, the budget got shrank. And so they had to simplify the story. And they, you know, were kind of petering to the finish line a bit. And what we get is pretty much the, uh, a shell of, I think, what was originally intended. Well, I guess it kind of makes sense. It looks like that. Yeah, it, it kind of looks like just like the, the skeletal remains of something that it was, it was supposed to be, you know what I mean? Like it's, it kind of feels like scraps and, and leftovers and just various bits kind of put in to, to, to try and make a completed film. Right. Yeah. Um, there's a, like who, who's this guy that directed it? I don't I have no idea who this guy is. I saw his name. It was like Sam Dohaska or something. And I was just no idea who this guy is, but he, I mean, there are like there are moments in the action, like in particular, like the hand to hand fight scenes towards the end, where it seems like he knows what he's doing. But the the rest of the movie, I'm like, this is a confused image of a movie where they've decided, and probably due to budgetary reasons, to use handheld cameras most of the time. But then they're also trying to do uh, point of view shots, which in traditional film. Uh, that's when you use handheld and you really can't do both, but this movie is trying to do that. And so it's sort of a, a confused thing going on. Well, yeah, this is uh yeah. Like you said, the, the, the gentleman who's credited as director, I guess, um, his name is, um, uh, Shimon Dotan. Although rumor has it that, uh, Dolph actually stepped in and handled most of the directing duties. This has been <laughs> confirmed. This has been confirmed by a few people who, uh, were, were on set and who were working on the film. But it sounds like, uh, about, you know, three days in production, if that even, um, this, uh, Shimon Dotan guy, uh, pretty much walked off the set and, Dolph had to step in and pretty much do all of the all of the directing duties himself, which is really, really kind of odd because I feel like all of 
Dolph's other directing uh, roles that he's taken on look so much better than this. Yeah, but if they don't have the equipment or the, the crew to do it, um, what are you going to do? Well, yeah, and I mean, that the, the little bit of research that I uh, that I went into in uh, preparing for this is, yeah, they were facing a lot of difficult and unanticipated circumstances. I mean, the money and the crew um, also came up much shorter than promised when they arrived on conditions. And I guess uh, due to these difficult shooting conditions, the screenplay was heavily rewritten and then simplified during the production. So what they had to do is they had to omit many of the twists and many of the subplots and everything. And what's, what's really kind of sad. I don't know if you've picked up on this or not, but what's really, what's really unfortunate with Dolph's career is, I mean, I've seen all of these films prior to doing this, but going back through and watching these films in succession with one another, it's really kind of sad how this is a recurrent theme in the films of Dolph, where he signs on for a promising project. And then as soon as he gets on set, the budget is slashed. The script is changed to reflect what the budget, what the budget can, you know, ostensibly do. And then the final product just becomes a shell of what it was supposed to be. And I think that is the real unfortunate uh, thing. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can tell this is a movie that feels, well, I guess I'll say it looks like it was shot with a few hundred dollars. Yeah. It is, it is a, it is like bottom of the barrel, low budget looking. And um, I know the, the Bourne film sort of, Repopularized the handheld in action, um, but uh, DTV was doing it first, and it was purely because it was cheaper. And this is one of those cases. Well, you know, I mean, and I, I kind of had this, uh, I kind of had this analogy. I was thinking about this earlier. You know, it, it's kind of like, okay, Brenton, you are, uh, you, <laughs> you and me are are planning a Super Bowl party. Okay, we're we're planning this huge Super Bowl party and we have like 50 plus people showing up to this party. Right. And we have, you know, three kegs ordered. We have a bunch of imported beer that's scheduled to be delivered. We bought a new flat screen TV. Okay, it's going to be this epic thing. And then a day before the the scheduled party, the TV screen cracks and (laughs) we find out that we're only going to get one keg instead of three kegs. And then the beer, the imported beer that we had. Uh, scheduled to be delivered is not going to be shown up on time. And so as a result, our guest list has shrunk down to, it was going to be 50. It's shrunk down to maybe 12. And to be honest, those, those, those 12 people are not, uh, are not at the top of our list, not the people we were looking forward to. And so it gets to the point where it's kind of thinking, well, then why bother having the party? And I feel like yeah. that's kind of where they're at with this film. You know I mean? If they're not going to do it right, then <clears throat> why bother even doing it? You know, maybe even cut their losses because I, I can't imagine that when Dolph and everybody was on set filming this, they were thinking, yeah, this is going to turn out good. You know, <laughs> like this is going to. Yeah. They, I don't know if they were uh, making the best of a bad situation or if they just got paid up front. Like, it's strange that they continued on. But when you think about it in that way, it's fairly impressive what they still managed to do. Right. Well, and I guess this was intended to be a franchise of sorts for Dolph, where this character Ronson was going to go on various uh, treasure hunting adventures. And uh, like I said, he was a kind of a more uh, a surly, uh, a badass Indiana Jones character. The sequel was, uh, was going to be titled uh, tumbling dice, I guess. And his, the, the 
Uh, it was going to take the character of Ronson to Shanghai, I guess. But I, after the experience of this one, that never materialized. And so Dolph was not able to revisit this character in a sequel. Yeah, that's too bad. Um, I can, I can see that though. Um, it's, you know, it's just really maybe not worth going through it again. Um, assuming that the same thing would happen, but I think it's, there's promise. If this was a, like an origin story type movie, I think it'd be pretty good, like to go to fall back on this. Cause it's sort of one thing that, that happens in the movie that, or, or not, I guess, in the movie, but with the movie, is that it's filmed with that this kind of cheap style that I think you might have said to me was sort of like a documentary-type style. And it really does help elevate the, the realism in the movie, because the movie does not play out exactly like an adventure movie. It plays out like the, the real-life events that would inspire... An adventure movie. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I know that uh, the the Paul Greengrass kind of shaky cam style of filmmaking, people either really love it or hate it. Uh, personally, I'm I'm not a huge fan of it, but I will say that I think here that's one of the things that uh, that kind of elevates this particular this particular film and helps it uh, kind of stand out among the other films in in Delph CV. I mean, because yeah, it. Uh, I, I think just the kind of handheld look of it, um, especially in those action sequences, really, I mean, it doesn't really put me in the, uh, in the, in the, in the front seat of those action sequences, but I think it does make the film look a little, just, just a notch bigger than I think it really was. Right. Yeah. But I mean, in terms of the events, the, the things that happen feel kind of sad and kind of unfortunate when they when they occur and so it doesn't feel um it, it doesn't it doesn't feel exaggerated like you would expect a, an adventure film to feel it feels um it feels real almost that's what that's what i guess my point is right yeah well i mean if you look at the uh the the first opening uh 10 minutes of the film. I mean, I guess we can get there right now. I mean, I personally, I really, really like these opening scenes where some voiceover narration, uh, courtesy of Dolph, we're introduced to his character and uh, we find out that uh, he's playing the character of Ronson. I mean, there's, there's really not a heck of a lot of exposition. I mean, it's told <laughs> through the opening title sequence um, that he is a, he's a mercenary slash muscle for hire slash uh, treasure hunter, and he's been living in Mongolia for over six years. I guess he initially came to the country to work in a gold mine, and he's just kind of languished there where he opened up his own business called Ronson Security, but he hasn't had any clients in, in quite a while. So what he's doing is he's uh, making his living participating in these backroom brawls because he's supposedly up to his eyes in debt. Well, he he's a character that, that lives by the seat of his pants. He doesn't really plan for tomorrow. Um, that's pretty clear, but he does, uh, like he chumps the entire, uh, population of Mongolia. It seems like what he does is he shows up, he pretends to be, um, a a complete loser. He, He pretends to be a bad, bad fighter. He pretends to be, uh, more drunk than he is when he goes into the bar and wins money arm wrestling uh, it's it's interesting to watch him um, 
relate to the world around him in that he he is just he's a total mercenary but uh, i don't know it's just it is a different kind of character for him so i don't know i guess i like it uh i like that character and and you know now that i'm thinking about it and uh, i have like stuck playing in the background too um, so i'm kind of like looking at the uh that opening action scene where they're in the pit fight and uh and that scene really is like actually really well shot. <laughs> yeah. And I, I have to wonder if maybe those scenes were the ones that, uh, that Dolph took over on and, and did those maybe. I mean, I, I don't really know, but apparently his character is, we find out, and this is kind of told in uh, some other dialogue by other characters, which is kind of unfortunate. That they really don't lean into um, but that. We find out he's a tortured character, right? Because there's clearly there's something that's holding him back from wanting to even go back home to the States because I'm assuming what he, he lost a few lives that were under his command back home. And so he's kind of punishing himself for those actions. Yeah. Well, he's, he's running, he, running. Yeah. The they, they, they say, he says something uh, in the narration at the end of the movie to that effect, you know, just, just need to run further away. Yeah. Um, which now that it's not a franchise, it kind of makes the whole thing more sad in a way. Yeah. Well, because he even says in his uh, voiceover narration at the end that um, when he's around good people, what does it, he say? Something like when he's around good people, bad things happen. So maybe he should just start kicking it with bad people. Right. Yeah. Let, let the bad things happen to them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's in my opinion, it's really kind of sad because I mean, like I said, I, I really like these opening sequences where we, we see him. I mean, it, it's kind of like uh, in Sweepers when they reintroduce his character in Sweepers. It's kind of hitting along those same story beats, right? Where he's yeah. uh, he's, a, he's a drunk and he has a tragic past. And so he's doing these fights and everything like that. Um, it's really kind of sad that a lot of the uh, a lot of the, the character dynamics that they've established kind of go downhill because I, I personally I really like. They, they have him, he's partnered with a, uh, with this, uh, like little Mongolian guy and mm -hmm. they're brought to jail together and everything. And it's, it's really unfortunate because that character is just completely jettisoned from the rest of the movie. And it, it's, I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but when we see him and his partner getting interrogated in the, uh, in the police station, and then when the expedition crew arrives, it almost like, it almost feels like it becomes two different movies. And I feel like, they should have yeah. kept that partner in the rest of the movie. Yeah. Well, even if, if they, they made it the guy that ends up drunk at the campfire later on, um, it, it would have had a little more significance because it's, it's just kind of sad. You're like, what happened to the guy? You know? Yeah. Um, if they have a, they have a history. He talks about it in the, in their interrogation scene. He's yelling about how he saved his life. And then in the gold mine, which is probably true. That's probably what his uh, backstory is with that guy. Yeah. And that's something that they probably cut and or simplified to, to, <laughs> to make the film. But again, I'm going to go back to my party analogy. You know what I mean? Like yeah. if you and I are putting, if you and I are doing this, uh, this, this thing and we don't have the resources that we intended do, should we just cancel it? Or should we eke by with, um, with your neighbor's, I don't know, 16 inch <laughs> tube TV and, and piss water beer. No one's going to want to see that. Right? It's just chips and salsa now. That's, that's, that's the party. 
Um, but I guess uh, so. So what what's what's going on then? We got the Ronson who's down. He's what, what do they say to him? He's got a couple weeks to get so much money. Were they right. going to put him in jail for basically forever? <laughs> right. So so then uh, this other fella shows up. Um, another actor that I am just I've, I don't think I've ever seen that guy in anything. And and but he's got a Yunnan with him or non you. And and what they hire him to get this tapestry. This magical so, tapestry, yes. Yeah. So but I think the guy's really more into the fact that there's like diamonds on the uh either on the embroidery or they're saying they're diamonds on the, the, the case that it's in and they're worth like fifty million dollars. Well and before we before we even get to there, I mean there's one thing that I just do want to throw out there real quick. I don't know if you picked up on this or not. But the one thing that I appreciated, especially about those um, those scenes where where Ronson and his partner are in the uh, are in the police station or whatever in the jail. Me personally, I really liked the the use of subtitles and the native language of the production. I mean, so many times in these films, I mean, you've seen it before. So many times in these films where it's set in an exotic land, yet everyone yeah. magically speaks English. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, here this is very clear, clearly a foreign production. And this is very evident, especially in these scenes here, which I wholeheartedly appreciate. Mr. Olsen, I'll just about cover you and your friends fine for today's fighting and gambling in a public place. How can I pay my debts if I'm locked up? Mr. Ronson, you've got four weeks. If everyone isn't paid by then, you will be back in prison for a long time. That's why I feel like it's as soon as this uh, this Chambers character, who I have a lot of things to say about this. This character, mainly the actor who plays him, that that's why I feel like after those fifteen minutes, it just becomes a, a different animal. Yeah, well, um, you're talking about the subtitles and stuff. An interesting thing to do, which I did on the uh, the latest time I watched the movie, was I watched it without subtitles, and I think the movie plays better if you don't know what people are saying to him and you're interpreting or you're interpreting through the other characters that, that tell Ronson what, what they said. Oh, interesting. Well, and now that was, uh, I can't believe I haven't asked you yet, but yeah, you did purchase another copy of this. It's a Blu-ray from yeah. another region, right? Yeah. I got it from France. So how does that, I'm curious, how does that particular copy look in terms of quality compared to the Sony? Uh, U.S. DVD release. 
Well, first off, uh, well, Blu-ray is is generally better, but that's not always the case. Uh, a lot of times they just kind of upscale things, and uh, from DVD, and it just it's a bigger piece of crap. But in this case, uh, the French Blu-ray is gorgeous for this movie, and I say that again, repeating and echoing what I said earlier that I think this is, might be Dolph Lundgren's ugliest film, but um, it looks really good. Oh, very cool. See, I'm gonna have to check that out actually, because okay. yeah, I'm, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to finally invest in a multi-region player because I feel like unless I have a multi-region player, I'm missing out on on so much in terms of uh, other releases. So I think you've inspired me. Um, <laughs> yeah, do it, do it. I definitely think you should. I think everybody should. I, I'm mad that there are even regions to begin with. Well, so let's talk about uh, the wealthy and egotistical benefactor. Um, the character's name is Chambers. <laughs> He's played by an actor, uh, William Shriver. I looked him up on IMDb. He doesn't have many credits to his name. He has maybe six, seven uh, film roles uh, in his entire filmography. Um, but he strolls into town with his entourage, and he's looking to hire Ronson for his services, where he's going to pay him a uh, hundred thousand U.S. dollars, right, to find this uh, ancient Buddhist tapestry. We're going to hear about it a few times in the film. It's called mm -hmm. the Tonga of God or Chervani. Now, before we get to the MacGuffin of the film, which is the Tonga, what do what do you think about the actor that they cast to play this Chambers character? Uh, he. I, I actually teeter-totter on him being incredibly annoying and also probably accurate for what okay. he what he represents. So I'm like, yeah, I'm really annoyed. And, and in fairness, in the universe, in the movie, all the other characters are annoyed by him too. So it's like, I don't know if the guy is just that good that he goes, yeah, this is the guy that yeah. everyone needs to hate. Or if uh, he's just really bad and shouldn't be in movies. I don't know. <laughs> I know he's... But he, I was kind of feeling the same way. I was thinking, oh my god, this character <clears throat> is just so obnoxious. Every time he's on screen and he's rocking that man bun, which I, I have some you know feelings about man, <laughs> man bun, but I'll just say right now. Um, but yeah, he's just so obnoxious. But I'm thinking, well, that's also the character he's playing. So I don't know if that's fair to to knock the actor when that's clearly the role that he's playing here, right? Yeah. Well, that's that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm like, eh, is he that good or is he that bad? Yeah. <laughs> I can't tell. Uh, but they do these scenes where the guy will do the the dramatic pause of of a of a monologuing villain where he, he'll say something like. Uh, you have, how shall we put it, put yourself in a bit of a pickle. You know, that kind of thing. Right. Nobody in real life actually talks like that. That's like a that's movie dialogue. But um, the way the guy delivers it, I'm just like, uh, is he? does he think he's cool? Does the character think he's cool? Or do the writers think they were cool? I can't tell. Well, his first scene in the film, he's bullying the uh, the concierge at the hotel. Like he's, he's, he pulls out, uh, what is it? He pulls out a bill and he says, you get one of these for every time I'm pleased. And it's like, people don't, at least people don't talk like that in the real world. Right. Like, I don't. The funny part is I'm like, he's not even like, he stays there like one night and I think he says to them, 
uh, you get one of these every day that I'm pleased, which is like right. he's he's flaunting his wealth, but he's also not being honest about the situation. He's not going to be there. He's, <laughs> he's not. Yeah, he's not sticking around. He's, yeah, he's a cheap ass. <laughs> he's like sparing no expense and yet also sparing every expense. Well, joining them on the expedition, uh, two other notable characters um, is an archaeologist who's apparently going to help uh, translate the tapestry. And then the character of Chambers, his stepdaughter is also coming along with them. Uh, interestingly, you already mentioned it, but his stepdaughter is played by uh, actress Nan Yu, who later reteamed with Dolph in uh, Expendables 2. And in this particular film, she... I, I guess it's really weird, because they kind of hint that she is becoming the romantic lead, but then they completely drop that in the final uh, <laughs> in the final 15 minutes for uh, other events that, that occur. But um, I, I think that's kind of the angle that they were going for. Yeah. Well, they're doing a thing which has to be like Dolph's input where all the women in the movie are just insanely attracted to him. Right. And uh, like even, you know, we, we kind of skipped over earlier, but, the, you know, the scene with the judges facing off with him, it, it ends with one of the, the, the female judge kind of like going, bye, you know, like. <laughs> just yeah. looking at him and waving uh, and then he uh, but he also has a, a Mongolian singer girl that he's into and she and him appear to have a past and she's giving Nanyu these like daggers like don't touch my man and that's you know there's, there's clearly subplots that are missing from this movie so uh, Nanyu just appears to be part of that I'm not really sure what it was going to be, but it uh, it kind of works. <laughs> well, speaking of, I mean, that's an excellent segue. Yeah, because, I mean, speaking of subplots that this film has that don't go anywhere and then subplots that I wish were kind of included is it's never really clear why exactly everyone is after the Tonga. I mean, obviously, it, it's it's very valuable and everything, you know. Um, but we have no real idea for why the rival expedition crew wants it. We're given a little bit of information as to why um, uh, Nan Yu and and her stepfather want it, because she kind of tells a little story to Dolph where um, her mother was, who was obviously married to Chambers, she knew the location of the secret map, and uh, and she she died under mysterious circumstances. So uh, the character of Annika, that's that's Nan Yu's character. She is protecting her inheritance, hence why she's, you know, going along for the journey. But as far as the the bad guys in the film, who we're going to be getting to, um, led by Zukov is the character's name, they're just bad because they're bad. And they want the Tonka because it's valuable. I mean, that's pretty much all we're given in terms of, of, of story and motivation for them. Yeah, well, it's, then that part's kind of too bad um, because I know that I've seen the actor and... You know, I watch a lot of uh, DTV films, and that actor, like, pops up all the time. Oh, he was in <laughs> Russian Specialist. Yeah, yeah, we just we just, we just, just watched him in a movie, speaking of which. Yeah. So, but it's just funny that he that he just, you know, he pops up. But uh, as to what you're saying, yeah, we don't, as far as we know, he's just about after the money. But we don't, we don't really know. He doesn't ever say anything. But again, 
in some respects, the way this movie is so stripped down, and I'm trying to remember, what is this? Is this an hour and a half long? Maybe. Yep. Um, there, it's so stripped down that it sort of works. Like the, this is an aspect of the film where everyone almost feels one dimensional because that's sort of how it would feel in real life. You don't get to know people over a couple hours. You don't get to in real life. You know, these people, if you meet somebody over and you know them over the course of a few weeks, you might get to know them. But in the movie, it's they're they're sort of like real people in in a way, uh, and, and and I guess that's maybe how I choose to view it. But uh, that is how it feels when I watch it. It feels fairly realistic. Even that bad guy, you're like, who knows? He probably has a whole life uh, of of situations that led him here, and we'll just never know. But I feel like um, if I was the director of this, um. He is a reflection of Dolph's character, and the way that they put that in the movie is they have him basically look a lot like Dolph, you know, shaved head and everything. That's an interesting way, because, okay, that's really interesting you mentioned that, Brent, because I kind of had a a different view and feeling on on that particular character, because th- there's something there's something going on here with the script that the film kind of leans into but doesn't fully flesh out because we're told that this tapestry is cursed because anyone who seeks it, anyone who is, you know, um, looking for it and in possession of it is um, is going to be cursed and is going to face uh, danger and even death. And so I feel like that right there, I think that should be the story. That should be, you know, to where the bad guy, if you will, is pretty much the uh, the tapestry. And I mean, and so they are facing bad luck after bad luck where they're trying to, you know, find this particular artifact and they keep losing one member of the team here, one member of the team there and everything. But what's really odd about this is while sure, ostensibly, yeah, the the expedition crew that Dolph is leading does have bad luck in a sense. That bad luck is brought to them not by the tapestry, but by this rival crew. By the uh, by, the crew uh, led by Zukov. You know what I mean. Yeah. So that's kind of, and so I kind of have a theory. I kind of wonder if maybe when this film started going in production, if they added in the character of Zukov, and they just figured, okay, we don't have the budget to pull off really what we want to do, so we're just going to put in this character, this rival team, and we'll put them on dirt bikes and whatnot, <laughs> and we'll we'll put in these era, these requisite action scenes. Because this stars Dolph and this is an action movie. That was kind of my wondering with with that character. It might be. I Because I don't know where they were going to go with it otherwise. Uh, I don't know. I, I love the fact that Zukov is... I don't know. He's just sort of... To me, he's, he's a guy that... He's trying to be really professional. But he comes off like a, a little bit like a Russian hillbilly... You know, he doesn't wear sleeves and he's riding the dirt bike and he and he hacks the one dude's head off. Right. Um, he's just like, I don't know, there's something about him, his facial hair. But I don't know if it's a budget thing that they just decided to eh, who can we get? Get that guy that's in everything and he'll be a he'll serve as our bad guy. Um I see where you could um definitely point towards that, especially when you look at like how 
unepic the the final face off is. So I don't know though. Well, I feel like this film because I mean what I did read about it is I mean this film in the initial script and everything the idea was to have the the climax I guess was going to take place in like a uh, a tomb or a cave and there was also going to be a, a water rapids action sequence because I feel like this is what the film should be. I mean, when you, when you hear the type of character the Dolph is playing and everything, that's what he should be doing. I mean, Ronson, he should be uh, crawling through tunnels and, and jumping cliffs. And I mean, he should be doing these things that we would expect an Indiana Jones character to do. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but you know, I have a six year old daughter I took her to see the Dora the Explorer movie, and Dora does more action in that film. Maybe she is more what the character of Ronson should be than uh, than Dolph is, unfortunately. <laughs> well, you're not wrong there either, though. I, I see what you're saying. Um, and s- to, to speak on the action in this, immediately after Dolph Lundgren is hired, do you remember the, the fight scene? That, uh, right. Like, Zukov shows up. And I think I told what I what I said to you, but um, well before we watched this, I, I sent you a message. I said it feels like B roll footage, and th- that fight scene is exactly what I'm thinking of when I, when I think of that. Is he? It feels like practice. It feels like they they shot a practice round before they were going to film the real thing, and then just decided to go with it because right. like Dolph does not wind back and hit nearly hard or fast enough. And then he just sort of like pretend runs away. It's right. a very odd scene. And then everyone's like, ah, don't worry about it. We'll just find out where he's going. Even though they know where he's going, they know they followed him there from where the guy that hired him was from. And it's just, a, it's, it's awkward. I feel like it's a, it's like a reshoot almost like they, they, maybe that's where they try to work in Zukov characters right there. Well, what's really weird is, I mean, I don't know if you saw this either or not, but I mean, or if you picked up on this, but pretty much the same action beat in this film is repeated at least three times where it's pretty much Dolph and uh, and uh, the Chambers and those guys or whatever. They're driving along this mountainous terrain in Jeeps. Zukov's team shows up on their dirt bikes. A shootout ensues. Dolph gets away. They move to the next location. Zukov's uh, crew comes again, once again, on their dirt bikes. Another shootout. I mean, that's pretty much the extent of the action here. Well, I think it. Well, I think it feels that way. But I think what they're doing is kind of what you were talking about earlier, where the where it feels like the the tapestry has cursed them. So mm-hmm. the first thing they encounter is, uh, I think, toll their toll their toll road guards, or yeah. And they and they just want money for passing through their road, and Dolph just kills them. I'm not sure there is exactly another one, but the the I guess the final one, um, the guys ambush them on the road on the way to the the monastery, and they kill off all the uh, auxiliary characters, including the guy that hired him. And uh, that's that's the scene where I'm like, this feels like how it would go in real life. What's interesting is, I mean, like I said earlier, I mean, this should be, you know, Dolph's character crawling through a cave and uh, and he does get to 
rappel down into a cave, but it's it's nothing spectacular. But yeah, it's about I'm, thirty I'm, seconds of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm convinced actually. I don't know if if you noticed this at all, but I'm convinced actually that the production pretty much had access to a um to what would you call it a uh, it's a, it's a monastery or a temple, if you will, and then all of the mountainous terrain that surrounds that particular that particular monastery or temple. I mean, because that's pretty much the entire film, all the action sequences, everything takes place in, I mean, we, as we're watching as a viewer, we can say, okay, they're going miles upon miles, but I wouldn't be surprised if maybe this entire film was shot on about 15 acres, feet, 15 acres <laughs> yeah. of, of yeah. land. So, right. I, I agree. Um, and part of that is actually because during that, that last, uh, scene that I was talking about when they're they're getting chased, you can actually see, uh, and maybe this is just because I watched it on Blu-ray, there's people um, up in the hills watching this happen, this gunfight, as they drive down the, which is, uh, by my estimates, supposed to be like a completely empty area. But there's people. I can see them. I spotted them when I was watching it this last time. Oh, like, I have oh, to go you back. See I people up on this. the hills. Yeah, I want to. I want to like send you screenshots or something. But it's so funny. I was like, oh, there's people up there, just like watching them. You see, you're gonna. Yeah, please. When we're finished, you got to send me that because <laughs> I did. I did not notice that. I mean, you know, but while I mean, okay, I, I have a couple things. I'm I'm, I'm kind of torn here. I mean, like we've established, the budgetary restraints on this one are extremely evident. Um, for an adventurous expedition film, especially in the second act, it really takes its time and is fairly boring in some parts. However, however, I will say, I think the exotic scenery, which in the end, the scenery is pretty much just that rugged mountainous terrain. But I would say that combined with the handheld shaky cam that they're doing, I think that adds at least something to the proceedings. Also, I think the, the use of daylight in the film, I think, uh, helps, uh, helps make this stand out a bit. Yeah, well, I thought at first that it was uh, that it was a detriment the the shaky cam especially, but uh, like I said, by the end there was something about how it, it made it you know and the and, and the way it was written I guess or at least the way it was uh, filmed it it felt uh, like I keep saying it felt like how it would really play out you know chambers. Um, ends up getting killed by stray bullets, which also works with the theme of the, uh, um, the cursed tapestry. Um, but other characters die too, you know, just, it's just random characters. And, and, and even at the end of the film, they, they make it to the monastery, right? And they're, they're fighting all these guys. Um, he gives a gun with a few bullets to, uh, to non you and so, and basically like hide, and she shoots a guy that's about to kill him. He doesn't die. He gets up, and you know she's not a a fighter. She's not a anything. And he walks up and stuffs a gun up into her and shoots her. And I was like, this movie's dark. It but, is. Yeah, but it's uh that's that's sort of how it would probably play out if this was real. So I don't. I can't hate it for that. I can't blame it for that because it's it's something I don't really ever see in movies. It feels uh 
feels like realistic. Well, I think you may have gotten me to turn around on that a bit because I noticed I noticed that as well. You know, it's it's really kind of odd because I feel like when all of these characters are killed, I mean, obviously, okay, the tapestry is cursed, right? So all of these members of this expedition crew are uh, going to be killed in the process. And yeah, even Annika, the uh, the love interest played by Nan Yu, I mean, she is shot. But what's really odd is well, there's a couple things. First of all, I thought it was weird how. Dolph is just watching. He doesn't. He doesn't jump up at all to try and help her. He's just on the <laughs> ground. That really kind of weirded me out. But I feel like none of these deaths are given any weight to the proceedings, to the characters. Nothing. I mean, these characters just die, and the movie clips on to the next scene. Especially Dolph's character. He's just like, all right, they're dead. I mean, even Annika. I mean, th- this was the one character he who he supposedly had this attachment to. Right. I mean, this is the one character who he, you know, started to build like a real bond with. And then when she dies, he I remember the next scene is as soon as she dies, he just kind of stares. He spits blood because he was laying on the ground bloody He spits blood out and he just gets up and he returns the uh, the Tonka to the to the Buddhists and then leaves. It's like, what is this here? Well, the uh, the guy too, um, Chambers, like the last thing you see of him is his dead hand gripping the trunk that's holding on to the tapestry. And I love that. I, I love how, like, just, like, gross it is. Like, where it's Dolph Lundgren dragging it away from his, like, cold, dead hands. Uh, there's something just, like, like I said, it's, like, realistic. Like, that was everything that guy cared about. And we got a little tiny bit of the backstory. It's so, in a, in a way, like, the fact that the movie is almost a half a movie works for it in a way. Um, and it's it's a dark way, but it, but I that's the way I see it. Yeah. Well, I mean, and going to Dolph's character again, a couple things I want to say. I mean, first of all, I want to stress Dolph looks badass in this film. I mean, I think the oh, shape of his look. Yeah, the shaved head, the camo pants with the gun holsters like on his thighs, and then him holding the backpack with hiking gear. I mean, I know that this was a troubled production. I mean, one of the things I read is that um, uh, there was hot days, cold nights, and terrible food on set, which Dolph didn't even bother eating because it was so bad. Um, (laughs) But in my opinion, I think Dolph appears to be having fun playing this particular character. I mean, maybe the production, sure, wasn't the best and had its fair share of problems. But I think he really seems to be digging playing an adventurer. Yeah, well, this is one of the times of all of these um, of these movies, especially since about 2002 that Dolph was in. This is probably the only one, and despite whatever faults it has, that I was genuinely upset to learn never had a follow-up because I I felt pretty good about it. Even yeah. though it is a cheapie, it's very clearly a cheapie, but it's fine in a way because I'm like, I like it. I like Dolph's character. I like his name. I like his attitude. I like the world he seems to inhabit, which is realistic, if not possibly affected by weird uh, magical talismans or cursed talismans. Who knows? But I liked it, and I was like, I, I, I was actually sad to hear that they didn't come up with a sequel. 
Well, I don't understand why New Image couldn't have picked this up. I mean, we probably should say, uh, surprisingly, this uh, this feels like it might have or it could have been a New Image production, but it wasn't. It was uh, distributed by some company uh, called Moonstone Entertainment, who obviously have since uh, gone defunct. But I don't understand <laughs> why uh, New Image could not have picked up the rights. I mean, they they and Dolph have have had a, re- a relationship obviously over the years that they still have to this day to an extent. So I, I think that would have been kind of cool. I mean, new image, I think could have done it, could have pulled it off and they could have picked up the, uh, the, the rights um, to the script. And even if they didn't want to use that exact script, I don't see why they couldn't have used the character of Ronson and uh, thrown something together, utilizing that again, you know, and done it on their yeah. Bulgarian, on their Bulgarian lots. Yeah, for, for real though. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, uh, I especially them because they seem, as far as I can tell, to have a good relationship with Dolph. The, my guess is that Dolph just doesn't feel that strongly about it. That's got to be the only explanation, right? Well, yeah, I mean, but I'm going to go back to something that you said when we <laughs> when we discussed Agent Red. I mean, <laughs> it's I would say in this one, um, this is Dolph giving us what fans want to see. I mean, Dolph is, he's ruthless in this film. I mean, he does tons of headshots and he slices throats and stabbings. And these are all extremely welcome considering that there were films prior, which may have been classified as action, but uh, failed to really give us uh, Dolph kicking ass, such as uh, <clears throat> Agent Red and Last <laughs> Warrior, you know? Fair enough. Well, oh, man. Last Warrior, man. Uh I'm glad I uh, I wasn't there for that one because I got nothing good to say about that one. But yeah, yeah but totally, it's it's just uh, it's weird in a way because yeah, this is a uh, this is Dolph doing, or at least the character, anyways, is exactly the guy that I want to see Dolph play. It's exactly like like fine, sure he can play a big. Russian dude that does awesome stuff and he does it really well, but I would love to see him do something else. And this is exactly that kind of movie, especially this is a character that has mystique to him that we never find out about in the movie. So there's a, there's something going on with him that they could have easily explored in further installments. He gets a, a really cool uh, one-liner. I don't know if you uh, picked up on this or not, but there is a cool scene where Dolph is, a, or excuse me, the character of Ronson is protecting his camp at night against some attackers who are trying to come in at, yeah, at night. Yeah, it's the best, it. best scene already. I already keep going. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just love how he so efficiently dispatches of all of these attackers. And then it's a really cool edit, actually, where... Um, one of the uh, one of the crew members uh, who I didn't pick up on the character's name, but he's kind of a throwaway character in the expedition crew. Um, he walks up to him and he kind of just sees he looks at Dolph just sitting there by the campfire and he sees all of these dead guys. And just how Dolph says, don't worry, they're dead. Like- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in the night, he goes out and kills. uh like every single character um, that the bad guys have sent out after them, he's he's hanging out by the campfire. He's basically sleeping, and they see him open his eyes, and they just uh, oh, well, let's not mess with this guy. But in that time, he gets up and 
walks out and kills every one of them in the night and stacks him by his fire. He stacks him like firewood. And one of the one of the chamber's bodyguards sees him. And that's what's going on there. <laughs> He's just, what's, what does the guy say? The guy even had a funny line like, all right, you know, just like, I'm fine. <laughs> I can't even remember what he says. But uh, it's just a funny, like, reaction to seeing, oh, Dolph's uh, at rest having killed all the danger in the night. <laughs> but it's a good but, scene. Well, But what's really odd about this, I mean, and again, this is a 90-minute action film, so I guess I shouldn't be expecting too much. But what's what's kind of odd is how zero time is taken to process these deaths and these events. It just zips along to the next scene, and no one appears to be... I mean, I would, I would think if I was on this crew and I saw a stack of dead bodies that uh, the bodyguard that I hired to kind of lead us had killed, I'd be kind of thinking, sh- shouldn't we go faster? Should we, you know, get going? But they, there's really no, no time to kind of process the weight of what just happened. But maybe I guess <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at that <laughs> a, little, a little more critically than, than need be. Well, now that I think about it, maybe that's a reshoot too. Maybe that's right. uh, Dolph going, we need, uh, we need an action scene here. Because it's never mentioned again. And when you see the bad guys show up at the end, they, they're not like, oh, that's the guy that killed like eight of our guys already. Well, I mean, and uh, we already kind of mentioned it, but uh, yeah, Dolph does get to go down into a cave, but it's really for only 30 seconds, which I, I can only imagine what that day of shooting was like as to why, I mean, why this adventure movie could not have had more time in the cave. Um, but, uh, yeah, he does, uh, we see him rappelling down into this cave and, um, they, they do find the Tonka, right? It's in the sacred box. And what I thought was interesting is how Chambers snatches it and he fires Ronson by leaving him behind. But then he quickly rehires him though. Once, uh, Ronson comes to their rescue after Zuka <laughs> and the rival crew almost steal it back. Well, I guess, uh, now that you mention it, uh, I should probably bring up that that weird moment in the in the movie where they show up, they find the doors to, uh, I guess, as an underground temple of some sort where they're keeping the Tonka. And then Dolph says, uh, "No, nah, it's probably booby trap. We should go to sleep." And so everyone leaves, and and they come back the next day and they go around like they they find a hole. And that's how they get in. But it's just kind of a weird scene. Uh, again, probably a reshoot. But, yeah, I just find it odd. But anyways, they fire him. Um, and they, did you notice those spikes? I, that's, I guess, my question. Did you notice the spikes before they came down? No. Because I did. I, I noticed them. <laughs> they okay, and I literally... They shine a flashlight on those spikes. And when the whole scene and everyone's looking up, the entire scene, everyone, all the characters are looking up, I thought they were looking at those spikes. And uh, I guess they weren't because uh, nothing happens until the slowest spike rail in all of cinema kills a guy. That's right. Okay. And see, I didn't even, yeah. And, and see, don't you think 
this type of movie, that should have been one of the main <laughs> obstacles is how they're going to get past this this thing of spikes. Right? I mean, oh, I'm yeah, just thinking back to Indiana Jones and whatnot. Yeah. In any action movie uh, of of this type, especially Indiana Jones, which any time you're going to make this kind of movie, you have you're you you have to know you're going to be compared to Indiana Jones, and they were like, "Nah, we'll shine a flashlight on those spikes, and then we'll ignore that it happens." But I guess the idea is that Chambers is so gung ho when he sees the prize that he can't help himself and he triggers the spikes. It's just that any thief worth their salt would grab that trunk and roll out of there well before those spikes came down. <laughs> well, and see, that's that's what I think the film is relying on. It, it feels like, okay, we do not have the resources to really give weight because I feel like they have a really cool talisman here, like you said then that should be, they should be leaning into those kind of things. I mean, kind of like you said, the spikes. I mean, this should be kind of like a Goonies-type expedition, right? Where they're coming upon all sorts of different puzzles and different uh, booby traps and, and different uh, obstacles along the way. But in the end, what they're relying on are requisite shooting scenes. You know what I mean? Requisite scenes of, of gunfire, which is fine, is welcome, especially in an action movie. But yeah. in a in a film where um, two rival expedition crews are searching for this talisman with um, that that is cursed or whatever, I kind of want a, a more Goonies action adventure than, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, that's the thing that's weird about this movie, and like I said before, I ended up kind of loving was that and so in real life, you don't get to make uh, all the discoveries. You don't notice every clue. And the thing with this movie is that um, the characters are, are weird. Like, Dolph's not a archaeologist. He's a mercenary. So he doesn't notice the things that he probably should notice. And, uh, and things that get people killed. The spikes. He literally... I Okay. I send you, I send you this picture. But it's Dolph shining a flashlight on the spikes. This is well before the spikes come down. And he should have noticed that stuff and been like, okay, that's the, that's the booby trap I'm talking about. But no, um, in real life, you might not notice it. You might even assume that it doesn't work anymore because what, it, how it was a hundred year old trap. I mean, who knows? Yeah. There's <laughs> well, <laughs> And I'm I'm looking at that image right now, and I'm just thinking, yeah, why? I guess I guess they kind of figured, okay, um, because this is an Indiana Jones type adventure movie. Well, then uh, we'll we'll have our character, you know, kind of shine something uh, at that, but we're not going to fully lean into that and do much with it. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> well, who knows? I don't I don't I don't know what the deal was on uh, I'm guessing a, a little bit of the writing of this movie happened after they'd already filmed. And yeah. uh, that's always a big hamper. You got to try and make a movie after you've already filmed it. The the problem is right after Dolph Lundgren shines the light up and he's like he literally looks at the spikes and then goes, "Eh, and he sends the two bodyguards to go open the door. 
Um, they may they make a point of giving a shot to Nanyu, literally looking up at the spikes like, "Oh, that doesn't look good," and it's just like, "What do you? What kind of movie are you guys trying to make here, guys?" <laughs> you know, like where? Why is nobody talking to each other and going, "Hey, that looks like danger." <laughs> well, and we've we've already kind of mentioned it, but I just want to go back to it again real quick. Why do they kill the character of Annika? I mean. Like I, I get, I get. Okay, obviously they're going after this tapestry. The tapestry's cursed. Blah blah blah. We've already kind of talked about that, but I, I just, I feel like, obviously the story in the film doesn't really give any attention or care to her character's death, which makes me wonder, like, why kill her character then? You know what I mean? Like, what what purpose in the end did that serve? Especially for Dolph to just end the film where he just walks away and he's. And I'm going to start hanging with bad people, I guess. Like, I feel like, I mean, because she actually had, they actually gave her a little bit of something, a little bit of backstory. And for them to just, you know, kill her in in the fashion that they did, it was like, man, this is ugly here. Oh, yeah. Well, that's um, part of what I was talking about before, where I'm like, yeah, in real life, um, you don't get a full arc. You don't always get it. You know, you right. can be killed in a horrible way. And in a way, I appreciate it. But in terms of a, a cinematic death, yeah. So she, they, they introduce this plot point where she doesn't know why her mother died. That's the whole point. And when Chambers bites it, that's the end of she'll never know. She'll never know what, what the deal was with her mother's death, which is a damn shame as yeah. far as uh, um, dramatic irony goes. But uh, if the movie is saying um, this is how it would really play out, if that's what it's trying to do, and it's not just a cobbled together mess, um, if it is trying, in fact, to say, Oh, we don't all get closure. Then it's a uh, it's sort of poignant. Like she died with questions unanswered, and and she died scared and trying to help. And it's kind of cool in that respect. And also, that's not really why I watched all Lundgren movies. <laughs> so right. it's like uh, it's it's frustrating in that in that respect. But it's it's hard because it's like. My needs as a, a, a film goer are fulfilled in a way, and which is why I ultimately like this movie. But if I'm just saying uh, I want to watch bad guys get punished by Dolph Lundgren, um, I guess they kind of are. But also, um, he didn't end up saving anybody. He's still just as lost and and uh, sort of a, a wandering character at the end of the movie as he was at the beginning. Well, I mean, and speaking of bad guys getting punished, uh, Ronson does get a final fight with the lead antagonist. Uh, the character's name is Zukov. This entire final fight here, I mean, obviously, this was intended, I think, to take place in a different uh, area of the film, and it was probably intended to be a much different, much bigger than... Uh, what it came out to be. What I personally would like, I mean, th- this really should have been, um, I'm assuming you've seen Men of War, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. 
Yeah, remember Dolph's final fight at the end with uh, Trevor Goddard, how they're in that underground mm-hmm. cave? That yeah. is what this should have been. I mean, that kills that him with a really, broken bone. He kills him with the bone. It's it's underground. They're thrashing through water. I mean, that is really what this should have been. Unfortunately, what we get is something that looks like it was rehearsed at about eleven in the morning, and then the cameras started <laughs> rolling right at noon. I mean, it's an okay fight. I mean, don't get me wrong, but sadly, I mean, it's 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 lacking for what it could have been. I mean, there's lots of punching, but um, in the end, uh, Ronson gets the upper hand because he slashes the throat of Zukov. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't want to compare, uh, you know, a GTV Dolph Lundgren movie to a to a Dolph Lundgren movie that was written by John Sayles. Right. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's a bit probably, unfair. I get it. Yeah, but um, one of the things they do that is is right if they're going to do it in the way that they did is that they instead give him two enemies sort of back-to-back, and one of which they've established is a physical threat because he's the guy that you see fight in the pit fight in the beginning of the movie. I was like, that's kind of cool. And he literally he sends the butt of his gun into the guy's face, and the guy takes it and keeps fighting. Like, that's pretty badass. So yeah. um, I don't know. I mean, if, I don't know if you've ever had anything hit you in the face before at all, but that's, that messes you up. And this guy gets kicked in the face by Dolph Lundgren, and then Dolph Lundgren um, butts him with his gun. And the guy's like, and he looks at him, he's like, oh, I guess I'm bleeding, and keeps fighting, which is uh, which is pretty badass. But anyways, the guy fights that guy, so then Dolph has to fight the other guy, uh, Zukov, and to hammer it again in real life, uh, f- fights do not last long in real life. If you've ever seen fights, they, they're not like long drawn out, ro- you know, Rocky, Rocky two fights. They are quick. And the first guy that gets a really good hit in wins. And Dolph Lundgren takes his, the knife out that he has. Uh, they, I think he's killed. He, he killed a rapist dude earlier with it. Slit, slit throats, as you said. And he just shanks the guy a couple times and kills him. Um, Honestly, I'm like, yeah, that's pretty much probably how it would go down. So, uh, to to continue on, that in terms of maybe accidental realism, uh, this movie works because because of the way it ends in that fight. Um, dramatically, eh, not so much. But uh, if I'm if I if I divorce myself from uh, the idea of a movie trying to be a movie and instead try and thinks that this is a movie trying to be realistic. Uh, yeah, it works. Well, I don't know about you, Brenton, but every fight I've ever been in um, goes at least eight rounds, and it's usually <laughs> I get a punch in, he gets a punch in. You know, I mean, it's, you know, it's fanfare, but... Uh, uh, <laughs> so... You, you, you only get better when your friends are start chanting something that you, you know, some kind of inside thing that you guys created when you're... 10 years old. Exactly. Yeah. It's usually, it's usually I'm getting my ass kicked for about the good first 10 minutes or so. And then my friends start <laughs> chanting and, you know, they start saying something and then that gives me the, the, the energy and the, uh, stamina to, to do something. So no you know, retreat, no surrender. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Fair enough. <laughs> 
Um, well, so yeah, Dolph, he does, once everything is all the bad guys are dispatched of, uh, Dolph returns the Tonka to the, uh, to the Buddhist monks who, um, who will protect it with the proper care that it deserves, even though they also say that it doesn't need protection. And they also, which <laughs> <laughs> is kind of weird. Um, and they also tell Dolph because he did a selfless act of returning it, then he is spared of, uh, of death. And I mean, we've already kind of talked about it, but yeah, the film just ends with Ronson walking away again, providing some voiceover narration that um, he's just going to head back and his debts are still not paid. Yeah. Well, that's the thing that's uh, the end of this movie is sort of sad. um, If there was sequels and we picked up and he was somewhere else doing something else, it'd be another thing. But the indication of the end of this movie is that he's just going to go back to where he was. And it's, it's really sad. (laughs) Yeah. Or or he's going to go to some other, you know, he's going to go to Juneau, Alaska or something. And, you know, we don't know. I guess they could do that sequel. I'd still, I'd still watch it. Yeah. I'd watch that. Well, here's my big question for you. And I didn't really even think about this back in 2008 when I first, watch this because sadly this is really only the second time I've seen this actually um but here's my big big question why is this called diamond dogs i don't <laughs> I, I you know i know there's the david bowie album um called diamond dogs but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense considering the context of the film i guess could you say that the expedition crew are in fact the dogs because they're searching for the tapestry that has the diamonds or like it's a cool title, but maybe I'm looking too much because I guess the title of Bridge of Dragons really doesn't make much sense as a title either. So, <laughs> Well, I 100% wish this movie was called Ronson or it was called Tonka. Oh, because, <laughs> yeah, something needs to be like there's no point to Diamond Dogs. Uh, I'm not like I'm aware of the song but I'm not really aware of the content. So maybe there's some like double meaning in the song that they were like, yeah, that sounds exactly like what we're going for. There's diamonds in the tapestry or at least in the trunk. Um, but as far as the dogs go, I'm not really sure. That's it's, it's just weird. Well, okay. So we've come to the end. Um, I've, I've had a great time talking about uh, <laughs> Silly little film with you as, as usual, but um, I'm curious. Okay, so Brenton, in your opinion, looking at the film of Diamond Dogs, does this film get a recommend, not just as a Dolph Lundgren film, but as a film in general? What do you think? Uh, I would say yeah, but there needs to be caveats. I I would say if if you're looking at like a a realistic version of of what an Indiana Jones type thing would be, be like this. This is probably how it would go down. These they would be mercenaries. They would hire. Um, here's probably what would happen. You would end up in a bad part of a country where there's there's no one to help you. So you are relying completely on mercenaries to literally kill the other bandits or whoever attacks you, and it's not going to be fun. And you probably won't survive this stupid adventure that you put yourself on. Um, and this is a movie that represents that. Like the only person that survives is literally the most capable person in the movie. 
It's the only person. It's not like, oh, look, somebody happened to survive. No, everything that would happen in real life is pretty much what happens. So that's how I would say it. I would think, yeah, watch this if you want to see a realistic uh, and kind of sad thing. <laughs> I like that, actually, a realistic Indiana Jones. Yeah, because, I mean, yeah. that, that's something that, that's really kind of interesting. I mean, we've seen the character of Indy go on um, four adventures, at least in terms of, of cinema, uh, four adventures. But, I mean, he's been on uh, countless other adventures. And you would think that particular character would be pretty tortured and would be extremely scarred. But no, every one of those films, he's just a, a happy-go-lucky guy. So I would like to think, yeah, Indy would be would be pretty messed up after, oh, after yeah. all of those adventures, yeah. Well, now, and when you put it like that, too, like it even makes more sense of the way that Ronson is. There's yeah. that weird moment where Chambers brings up his his background and is sort of like, Oh, you killed everybody in your squad when you were in the military. And he just, he, he kind of like contemplates it for about two seconds. And then just goes, Hey, you said there was a bunny involved in this. And that's, yeah. that's where I was like, okay, this is a more realistic thing. Cause in real life, a person isn't just uh, an emotional roller coaster. Every time you bring up something for their past, they immediately, mask it with something else which is his newfound identity which is all money he's a mercenary now well you know i would say in my opinion i think the uh the character of xander ronson and the overall premise and the ambition behind this i think easily gets an a plus i mean i think this could have been something really really cool i i have said it numerous times already but i love this character i think dolph is an adventurer with a shaved head is just badass Unfortunately, when in when you're working with a low budget and failing resources, it's hard to make lemonade out of lemons. Or as I said earlier, it's hard to uh, it's hard to throw that Super Bowl party when all you have is uh, chips and salsa and a 16 TV. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, it's it's coherent. I will give it that it, it, it the film is coherent and it does tell a story that gets from A to Z. There really aren't any plot holes, but it also has the obvious feel of being uh the scraps and the leftovers of what could have been. And I think that is the real shame. Sadly, this is another film in Dolph's CV that I think sounded great on paper, but became something completely different than what he had signed on for. And the fact that there are half a dozen experiences in films in his filmography that have suffered this, that same kind of fate is a real shame. So I would say for Dolph completists, it does get a recommend, especially in terms of his character and those solid opening 10 minutes. Um, but with regard to the film in general, I think it's going to bore any casual watcher, especially those who maybe aren't the biggest doll fans or someone who comes into this thinking, Hey, I like Indiana Jones. Let's watch this uh, Indiana Jones type movie. I think unfortunately it's going to bore them. Uh, thankfully, the good thing about this is Dolph did have, I mean, this film was sandwiched right between the Defender, Russian Specialist, and Missionary Man on both sides of this one to kind of help balance it out. So I think that's kind of what uh, gives it a pass a bit. It is. It's sort of too bad in a way that it's... I think that it, in terms of um, Dolph Completionist, this is going to be... It's going to wind up being one of those like lost films where mm -hmm. people are like, oh, why don't more people talk about this? Um, which is too bad. But... You know, since they didn't follow up, I guess it's understandable. 
I like that. Is yeah, I the, you said. I mean, because for the longest time, like I said, this this sat for a couple years before it was finally released, and I wondered if it was going to be one of those lost films because it was really odd when he had Missionary Man. When Missionary Man was coming out, he still had Diamond Dogs and Retrograde. Those were two films that he had shot prior to Missionary Man that were just sitting, and I wondered, like, are these films ever going to see the light of day? They eventually did. And then you kind of look at them, and especially with regard to Retrograde as well, you look at both these films, and yeah, you can kind of tell that these are films that were completed, but were really just limping to the finish line. Yeah, well, you know, it's weird, and, and I know a lot of, um, uh, what is it, Missionary Man is, is Dolph's pill writer, but it uh, a lot of people really like Missionary Man, but honestly... Personally, I actually prefer this film because I feel like it's so different. It's so weird. Like Missionary Man, because it's clearly him doing Pale Rider, I'm like, eh, I've seen Pale Rider. I already know that. This is different to me. So I, in a way, appreciate this movie more. That, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, because especially when the the a couple episodes back we did Missionary Man, watching that one again yeah, it's fun. I mean, it's mainly in the third act, but you watch it and it's kind of like there's really nothing nothing here that uh, that stands out and makes it uh, unique and original. Diamond Dogs, I feel like, yeah, especially in terms of the character, there's something here. And it, yeah. it's a real it's a real shame that uh, they weren't able to uh, to see it, to see it through as I think it was intended. Yeah, um, no, you're 100 percent. But uh but yeah before before I let you go I mean uh we've talked numerous times about uh your YouTube channel and your website um is there anything you're working on anything that you want to plug or give a shout out to any movies you've seen recently that deserve a special uh mention or, or recognition what's going on Well yeah uh one thing I've been working on and man it is this is not the the right time, let me tell you. Um, I've been working on uh, Cobra, and it is just like I've never felt the world around me telling me that it is the wrong time to make a video about a cop who is essentially a, a fascist than right now in the world. So <laughs> I've just been like, ah, oh, man, what should I do with this this video? Um, I'll probably end up releasing it anyways, but uh, basically I've got Cobra in the can, and uh, and I'm working on my 1965 uh, action movie retrospective. Very cool. Yeah, it's um yeah well, we're we're in some uh, really interesting times right now, but I think uh, Cobra Man that uh, we've you and I have talked about it before that is a uh, definitely a product of its time. And yeah. so that that one uh, that one should be interesting because I mean Cobra it's interesting because I think I was telling you I picked up the uh, the Shout the Shout mm -hmm. uh, special edition collector's Blu-ray that was put out and you know what's so wild about that one is I mean we've talked about it before obviously Cobra was Sly's intent to to have his own franchise another franchise another character and everything but it's also that film came out when he was the biggest star in the world without a yeah. doubt. And man, when you watch it and he comes on screen, it's, it's almost like Sly and his character knew like, yeah, I'm, I'm the biggest thing right now. 
in the world and and I'm I'm running with it. And I think that is kind of w- one of the many things about that film. I mean, it's not a it's not necessarily a good film, but it's one of those things that um it's it's such a product of its time that you can't help but uh but look at and just kind of marvel that it exists and was even made. Well, it's beautiful. He, he did I mean, he came off being uh what number 2 and 3 in the box office with uh Rocky 4 and Rambo 2. And the next thing he did is Cobra. And it absolutely feels like a vanity project. Um, But I did so much research into this movie. (laughs) I went into every, every thing that every actor in the movie had been in. And uh, I read the book that it was based on. I just did all kinds of research into it. And, and then, um, we're suddenly in this world where, uh, hey, uh, I mean, look, it's never been cool that cops uh, are a little aggressive at times or maybe over aggressive. It's never been cool. It's never been a good time for that. But particularly right now, which is everything Cobra's about, he's he's just a character that's uh, overly aggressive and will literally shout down his superiors who try and tell him he's being too much. And right now I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I should make a video about this guy. <laughs> well, hopefully it will uh, be able to see it uh, come to light in, in yeah. some fashion at some point. But, um, but yeah, and you know, unfortunately, you know, Hollywood is uh, still closed. I guess they're slowly starting up some, some productions and whatnot, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's really wild out. And uh, I know Netflix is, uh, Netflix and these streaming services are still premiering uh, new content. But what's really weird is um, as far as action movies go, I really don't have any desire to see their latest action movie that uh, came out last week, uh, The Last Days of American Crime or whatever that's called. That one's gotten terrible reviews. And then I did check out Extraction a few weeks ago, the one with uh, Chris Hemsworth. And while I think that you, you enjoyed it. okay, yeah, I loved it. I, see me. I mean, I, I I thought the one tracking shot in the middle of it was awesome, but man, was it uh, well? I guess kind of going on with this film, maybe that's the theme uh, of, of this episode. It it was kind of like Diamond Dogs in a way, to where it was almost too realistic and too ugly for me to find enjoyment out of it. Mm, I mean, that's that's fair. Throwing, maybe I mean, that's... come on, throwing a kid off a roof. Like yeah. I was kind of like, oh man, this is. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. You're, at the end of the movie, I was literally still thinking of that scene. So that's funny you bring that up. Well, it's not really funny. I think that's probably the effect that, like, surely they had, they knew when they filmed that scene that that's what we'd be thinking about. But yeah. man, I was like, God damn, that guy just threw a kid off the roof. Yeah, the end of the movie. That's all I could think about. Yeah, but <laughs> I mean, I, I have been I have been adamantly opposed to uh, Netflix's original content. Um, not just not just out of, out of principle, but just I mean a lot of the stuff they that they've done I've watched and I've kind of been like eh, like this isn't really in, in it that good, you know what I mean? But I will say, looking at uh, films like Extraction and then Triple Frontier, I loved Triple Frontier. Those have a level of uh, quality and production to them that I'm like, okay, if Netflix can continue doing stuff like this, I will I will continue watching. So yeah, they're they're getting uh, they're getting pretty good actually. Now that I think, yeah. you know, especially when you bring that up, 
Uh, Triple Frontier I liked as well. I think I liked the extraction more because it was dumber, if that makes any sense. But yeah. <laughs> well, Brenton, uh, th- this has been this has been a ton of fun. I know I can always uh, rely on you and, and count on you, but uh, thank you again. And uh, to everyone out there who is listening, please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews. And we'll see you all next time on I Must Break this podcast. Hello, listeners. Sean Malloy here once again. Uh, Before we fully close the episode up, I wanted to play Tom Jolliffe's thoughts on the film. Tom is a friend and guest of the show. Uh, He last guested on an episode about a year and a half ago, uh, the fun flick The Minion. But here, he also wanted to give his thoughts and opinions on the missed opportunity that was Diamond Dogs. Tom actually has quite a bit of background on the film. He's read the initial screenplay as well as the script to the sequel that was to be produced called Tumbling Dice. Here, Tom gives his brief insight into the film as well as what could have been. Uh, Afterwards, I'll be closing out the episode with a sampling of David Bowie's song, Diamond Dogs. Seeing how the two are unrelated, but at least share the same moniker, I felt it was only fitting. So, without further ado, are Tom Jollop's thoughts on Diamond Dogs. Thank you. Hi, my name's Tom Jolliffe, and I'm going to offer a little bit of insight into the film Diamond Dogs. So, I've read a couple of versions of the script, um, the first draft and the second draft from Leopold St-Pierre. I read these back in the day before it actually filmed, and, you know, it actually in back then got me quite excited about the film and the prospect of it you know working with a chinese crew you know the money in theory could stretch a bit further you'd start expecting maybe you know good fights good stunt teams um obviously the final film came out as it was and uh you know while there's nuggets there that are enjoyable it's obviously in the end it's a failed it's failed potential so originally in the first draft it was a more of a mystery film there was a lot of mysticism about the tanker the whole tomb sequence was more elaborate there was more traps you know it was a lot more of an impressive sequence than you see in the final film you also had things in there like um a sequence on water rapids there was this element of mystery as you know once they've got the tanker people are mysteriously dying and there's a sense that the thing is cursed so you have a little bit of that in the final film, but it's sort of, it's glossed over a little bit and it doesn't really come across. The, uh, the first draft was deemed not sort of Lundgren friendly enough, so there, was, there weren't enough fights in it, there weren't enough shootouts. So the second draft has more of that in, but at the same time there was a lot more thrown in, um, so it comes across as quite messy. So I think by the time they've gone through uh, Leopold's second draft to when i think frank valdez comes in does some rewrites you know he's cleaning up a lot of uh, the fat in the film particularly from the second half onwards you know where there was a lot of mess in there so in part you know trimming characters makes things a bit easier for scheduling and everything but also you know there were the, the budgetary problems as well so if you notice in the film from about sort of 40 minutes onwards not a lot happens all the locations are very similar you know it's all wide open spaces not particularly exciting looking 
um, and shot quite plainly and quite quickly. Everything looks a little bit rushed and then there's no really sort of big finale. So they obviously, with all the problems mounting, they just ran out of ideas of what they could put in and you know how they could fix the film. So as a character, you know, Ronson was never really coming across as he should have, you know, as sort of Indiana Jones as if played by Bruce Willis. You know, he's meant to be a lot more sardonic, a lot more, you know, wry and witty, having a lot of great lines. Um, but that never really comes across in the film. Uh, more interestingly, I think, is the proposed sequel, Tumbling Dice. So this was actually written before, you know, Diamond Dogs had actually shot. So I wrote, I read this as well before I'd even seen Diamond Dogs. And this was the one I was more excited about because this was a lot more... You know, as it was in a first draft form, it was already Lundgren made, you know, had all fights in it, had a lot of shootouts, a lot of action in it. You know, there was ninjas, there was mysticism. Uh, there was a great opening where, you know, he's the character Ronson is reintroduced in a like a underground sort of card game that breaks out into this mass brawl. And he's, you know, firing off one liners as he's beating up all the bad guys. So... It was a really sort of fun opening, really fun film that, you know, it would have needed quite a big budget. You know, something along the lines of the sort of skin trade level of budget, really. So, you know, it's a shame that we never got to see that film. And, that, you know, also that we never got to see Diamond Dogs in the form that, it you know, it deserved to be. Those are my thoughts on Diamond Dogs. Thank you very much for listening and be well.